well. It's good to be with you this morning as we... I've got a lot of feedback. All right. Uh, as we continue our sermon series on being the church for Battle Creek, again, there's kind of two parts to this sermon series. First part is being the church, and the second part is being a church that is a mission, and God has planted us here in the Battle Creek area, and so we embrace that mission to minister and to care for our community. Um, we're doing this uh, sermon series. We're learning what it means to be the church by following the early disciples of Jesus to follow the first church through the book of Acts. And we're not going to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Acts, but we're going to follow kind of some of these main events that help us understand what it meant for them to be the first church. Last week, we, we looked at a sermon by Peter in which he called and invited people to escape from a wicked, a corrupt, a dying culture. He, he asked people to be saved from that corrupt and dying generation. That was his invitation. And he spoke out against the corrupt leadership and, and the way that the world had gotten power and faith twisted. As Acts continues on, Peter gives more of those sermons. We can find... A, similar messages, and he, he repeats those sermons, and then we see some miracles happening as well, and, and so these sermons and these miracles together provide this powerful message to the people of Israel, but the people in power, the people that crucified Jesus and wanted him to go away, weren't really thrilled with these sermons and these miracles. It upset them, and of, of course it would, right, because the sermons, if you remember from last week, the sermons were saying that these Jewish religious leaders were, were in partnership with the empire of Rome to ensure that their power and their control was secure. The leaders of God's people were working with the enemies of God's people, not for the benefit of God's people, but to get more power, influence, and wealth for themselves. And these people, they clung to this power and corruption so dearly that they were willing to kill Jesus to make sure that they held on to it. They were willing to kill God's Messiah to keep it. And so while the crowds responded to this, these messages and these miracles, remember last week we said 3,000 people were baptized after hearing Peter's sermon. The crowds were excited and thrilled and energized and responsive to this message. But the leaders who killed Jesus weren't quite ready to admit that they had killed God's son. They weren't ready to confess and admit that they had been so wrapped up in a pursuit of power that they saw God himself as a threat to their status and therefore had him murdered. They weren't ready to acknowledge that. Instead, they doubled down on the efforts to eliminate all traces of this Jesus. And originally they thought killing him would make this whole thing go away. Right? We've got to stop this Jesus movement. There's too many people. There's too much going on. Like, let's kill him and, and, and it'll go away. But then the Holy Spirit showed up. Jesus' followers took to the world with a mission of sharing Jesus' teachings with as many people as possible. And so instead of Jesus disappearing after the crucifixion, Jesus was in fact alive and active in this community of Christ's followers. So the attention of the Jewish religious leaders focused in pretty closely to these Jesus followers. They stopped 
They were attempting to stop the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, from preaching and teaching this Jesus. This became their new mission. They'd gotten rid of the Jesus guy, but now they have this whole group of Jesus followers, and it's kind of spiraling out of their control. And so these Jesus disciples, these apostles, these chosen ones of Jesus were arrested multiple times. We see the stories in the book of Acts. And they were told when they were arrested, they were told to stop preaching Jesus, stop teaching about Jesus, stop this message. But they continue with their ministry. One time the apostles were beaten and told to stop preaching and teaching about Jesus. They were physically beaten and then said, stop preaching Jesus. So how did these apostles respond to being beaten and told that they had to stop talking about Jesus? Well, the Bible says, and I I love this, in response to that, Acts tells us that day after day, in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So all of this going on, the religious leaders, the powers, they're abusing and, and harming, bringing physical violence, beating the apostles, and the Bible just comes out and says, day after day, without ceasing, without stop, they were in the temple, they were in the house, they were proclaiming the good news that Jesus is Messiah. In, in the, it actually says, if you read through the scriptures in Acts, it says that the, the apostles rejoiced after being flogged, after being beaten, because they had been worthy of suffering for Jesus. In Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to a follower of Jesus named Stephen. Some of you may be familiar with Stephen. He caught the attention of the local synagogues, and not, not in a good way, <laughs> right? He got on their radar. This Jewish community of faith uh, did not like the things Stephen was saying and doing, and so they decided to confront him. When that proved to be ineffective, like challenging him head on, saying, stop what you're doing, and Stephen just wouldn't be stopped. They switched back to the old reliable tactic, the old tool in the toolbox, the old go-to of talking about him behind his back. (laughs) Start rumors. Cause up drama. Stir up trouble, right? They claimed that Stephen was against Moses, that he was against the temple. He was against the law. They convinced other people to spread lies about Stephen. They stirred up enough trouble that people came and arrested trying to stop Stephen from doing these awful things that he was accused of. And so there's this moment in Scripture where the high priest, like the CEO of the temple, like the, the chief guy in charge of the whole religious system, confronts Stephen. And he says, are these charges true? Are you doing these things? And in response, Stephen began telling the history of Israel to the chief priest, starting with Abraham. So, I mean, picture this in your mind. The chief priest, the, the, this big important guy, and I, in my mind I have him dressed in like fancy obnoxious clothing, um, you know, like a Pope-type hat. And all. Anyways, that's just in my mind. You don't have to imagine that in your mind. But I imagine this chief priest, this high priest going up to Stephen and saying, everybody's saying you're against Moses. Everybody's saying you're against the temple. Everybody's saying you're against the law. Is this true? And Stephen doesn't respond yes or no. He starts saying, well, once there was this man named Abraham, And you know you're in for a story. If you're ever talking to a a pastor and they say, once there was a man named Abraham, get 
get your seatbelts on. It's going to be a minute, right? Because that's, that's the beginning of the big story. And so as he told the story of Israel, Stephen highlighted all the ways in which Israel's religious leaders and Israel itself had rejected the teachings of God and, teach, and rejected the teachings of God's chosen messengers, especially Moses. And then, after saying how Israel had been unfaithful to God and, and has a history of not listening to God and God's messengers, Stephen focuses his attentions not on the history, but on the present moment and on those religious leaders that had come to confront him. So Stephen, it's one thing to accuse, oh, remember back 500 years ago when Israel wasn't listening to God's prophets. But then Stephen shifts the attention. He says, you, you religious leaders right here, they had gathered to judge him, and he ends his story by pointing his finger, God's finger, directly at them. And so this is where our scripture passage shows up for today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 60. This is Stephen speaking to the religious leaders who came to accuse him of being unfaithful. This is Stephen's words. I, I, anyways, this is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. I say that every week. This is one of my favorite. <clears throat> Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? I know I usually read through the scripture without adding commentary, but that is probably one of my favorite things in all of scripture. <laughs> like Stephen's like, did you ever even like a prophet? Like anyways, he, he just was really laying it on. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? You've been wrong for thousands of years. All right. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, and you have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they, the religious leaders in the Sanhedrin and, and all of that, they covered their ears and, yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of God for the people of God, and a response can be, thanks be to God. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for these words today. These words in the Bible from long ago that tell the story of Stephen confronting these religious leaders. They thought they were coming to confront him, and yet... He had a different story for them. He knew a bigger story. He knew a bigger narrative. And when confronted, even with threat of his own life, he did not back down. Instead, it was the words of Jesus that he found on his lips. Father, Jesus dying on the cross says, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And Stephen says, Father, Jesus, forgive 
these sins. And Jesus dying on the cross says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Stephen here says, Father, I give my spirit to you. Stephen is modeling his faith. He does not back down just as his Lord and Savior, his Messiah, went to the cross boldly. He is boldly facing down these challenges. May your spirit speak to us this morning so that we may not only understand what Stephen did, but what he calls us to be as the church. We thank you and love you. Amen. Well, the Stephen guy, he was on trial, accused by false witnesses for being against Moses, being against the law, and being against the temple. And when he was asked if he was guilty of these charges, he responded by calling out those religious leaders and their conduct. He called them out. He called out and accuses those who came to accuse him. He accused them of cooperating with Pilate and murdering God's Messiah. When he says this, he gets the response that you would imagine that he would get. They were angry and began shouting and yelling at him. But Stephen wasn't intimidated by their behavior. The Bible says that he was full of the Holy Spirit, so he kept speaking. He declared that he saw Jesus, the one they had killed, standing at the right hand of God. <laughs> he said, I see this Jesus that you killed, and he is in the position of authority. You've killed God's Messiah. Stephen wasn't saying that Jesus uh, Stephen was saying that this Jesus that they killed was the Messiah, that he bears the authority of God and is sitting at God's right hand. And this, all this was just too much for these religious leaders and for the crowd that had gathered with them. And so in mob fashion, they rush up on him, drag him outside the city walls because it would have been inappropriate to stone somebody inside the city walls, but you drag him out and then it's okay. So they drag him outside the city walls and stone him to death. And his final words, Stephen's final words, were much like the last things Jesus said. Asking that their sins be forgiven and praying that they receive, that God receives his spirit. And then Stephen died. And so Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr recorded in our scriptures. Becomes the first Christian martyr that we know of. This word martyr is a unique word. It's actually not an English word. Sometimes when translating languages, there's not an equivalent between the languages, and so you just kind of take a word in the original language and manipulate it a little bit, and it becomes a new word in the other language. So martyr actually comes from a Greek word, martus or martus. I don't know how to exactly pronounce it. Um, but what's interesting is that there is actually an English word that this martus or martus is actually translated as. So sometimes when the Greek author or the author wrote in Greek the word martus, sometimes it's translated as martyr. And other times in our Bible, they, that exact same word shows up with a different English word. And that different English word is witness. So sometimes this word is translated as martyr, and sometimes that same exact word is translated as witness. And so when you're reading the New Testament, when you see the words witness or you see the words martyr, you're actually, you have a glimpse behind the scenes. You can know that the word behind that, the original language that that was written in, the words of the author was martus. 
And so there's this connection between witness and martyr that runs deep. A martyr is a witness, but a special kind of witness. It's one whose testimony is sealed with the blood of the one testifying. It's one who is, is, is testifying to a truth and is willing to endure whatever suffering it takes to testify that truth. It's a witness whose commitment to the truth they've encountered has cost them their life. And so when Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The word there for witness is that same martus word that is sometimes translated as martyr. And so for the first 300 years of church history, martyrdom was a real and profound reality for followers of Jesus. And I don't know if we modern Christians are aware of just how profound and how how deep and, and, and the profound legacy that this early church martyrs had on the church. At the time, uh, at various times throughout the early church history, the Roman emperors declared official persecutions on the church. Like it was a Roman emperor decree, that like, hey, we're going to go after these Christians. And sometimes these persecutions would just be like a little bit of harassment, like we're not going to let them meet together or we're going to, you know, mess with them a little bit. Other times, it was a lot more severe. Sometimes they were executed in the most horrific and public ways. There's a long legacy of, of Christians being martyred for their faith. And if you read through the early church history, you'll see that this Christian martyrdom shaped the early church. Official persecutions happened on and off for the first couple hundred years until Constantine declared Christianity to be the official religion of the empire. But even outside of official persecutions, the early Christians ran into a lot of trouble, a lot of problems in the communities in which they lived. Sometimes mobs of people would gather together and just decide, we're going to go get those Christians. Something bad happened. It's probably their fault. We're going to go get them. There's rumors. And like these Christians were weird. There's there rumors that Christians would go and eat babies. Have you ever heard this one? Uh, kids, plug your ears. No. Um, Christians, early Christians would go, and there was a thing called father's right of refusal. And so when a baby was born, the dad could choose if he wanted to accept that baby into his family or not. And if he said no, the baby got put outside the door. And the Christians would go around and collect these unwanted children from doorsteps and take them into their families and care for them. There's rumors that they were collecting them because then they'd have communion and they would talk about eating flesh and drinking blood. And so there's these awful rumors. People were trying to figure out what these Christians were. And so when something terrible went wrong, they said, it's probably these Christians that did it. So let's blame them. The Roman world was extremely ordered, too. There was a structure, and everybody had a, had a place. And you knew your place. And the whole world functioned because of your, the way you fit into that place. And if everybody stayed within their lane, if everybody stayed and did what they were supposed to do, then we could have peace. At the top of this, this structured world was Caesar, the emperor. Then underneath him were the senators and those with education and status and, and uh, slave owners and business owners and the wealthy and the, the elites. Underneath them was like the working poor, servants, and finally at the very bottom, the slave class. 
And these Christians, these weird people, <laughs> refuse to live by those, those guidelines. They refuse to function based upon that, those stas, status of class. We see in the words of Paul that senators and slaves were declared to be equals. The rich and the poor were viewed as equals in the church. The amount of inclusivity, the amount of equality was scandalous. So every once in a while, angry crowds would, would come threaten these Christians because they were turning the Roman world upside down. They refused to play by the Roman rules. They didn't actively seek to disrupt Rome. It wasn't like they, the Christians met together and said, how can we mess with the emperor this week or how can we disrupt our town that we live in? They just were committed to living the way that Jesus taught them to live. And that in and of itself disrupted Roman life. When the church lived according to Jesus, it was pretty clear to everyone that the church didn't fit in with the rest of the world. And that not fitting in is what led to these persecutions that the Christians faced. It's what led to Christian martyrdom. It was the witness of the church. Whenever Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, he wasn't speaking of the cross as a religious symbol, you know, something you wear on a necklace or a bumper sticker you put on your car or a sign we put in front of the church. He was, he was talking about the Roman means of executing people. The cross in Jesus' day was the most brutal form of state-sponsored execution. It was the Romans' way of sending a message to anyone who might think about not following the Roman law or anyone who might even consider the idea of disrupting Roman peace. This cross would be your fate. And so Jesus saying, pick up your cross and follow me was, was the equivalent of saying, hey, go grab your electric chair or your lethal injection stuff and follow me. This sounds harsh or heavy-handed, but Jesus, he warned his followers from the beginning that following him and reject the kingdom of this world makes you stand out. It puts you in a vulnerable position because people are going to see that you are different. There's risk involved. The early Christ followers knew from day one that there could be suffering, there could be pain, conflict because of their choice to follow Jesus. They knew that they would stand out from the rest of the world. And they knew that it was because they stood out from the rest of the world that they could be witnesses for Jesus. They knew that because they were distinctive that they could be witnesses for Jesus. Because they lived differently than the world around them, the whole world could see how life in the kingdom of God was lived. They could see that this kingdom of God, this kingdom of Jesus, was radically different than the other kingdoms. And the more committed and the more faithful the church was to that life, the more powerful witness to the world they had. Because of the radical commitment of following the teachings of Jesus and living according to the commandments of King Jesus, they found themselves being a light in dark places. They, they found themselves being a city on a hill that could not be hidden. They found themselves being the salt that Jesus talked about, being distinctive, being different, with a unique purpose. What's interesting to me is there's history books filled with accounts of Christian martyrs. Christians went to their fate 
knowing that it was going to end with suffering and probably execution. And these martyrs faced all kinds of persecutions, and there were people that watched and witnessed these martyrs. These martyrs lived with faith and peace and boldness. And the witnesses, the people that saw that, these history books are filled with people that watched Christians suffer and said, they've got something that I think I need. When you watched the suffering, they were witnessing to a different kind of kingdom. Those who saw innocent martyrs committed to Jesus and committed to living according to God's love rejected the powerful and violent governments that persecuted the Christians. These martyrs were witnesses that declared Jesus as king of another kingdom. They declared Jesus was king with their actions and with their words. And they did this regardless of the difficulty or regardless of their own suffering or regardless of what it cost them. Well, this is a pretty heavy message <laughs> to start out with, right? Like, this is pretty, pretty profound, pretty heavy. But I want to transition right now to, to us. This past year, we didn't see any of us being eaten by a lion, not that I know of. <laughs> I hope not. Um, I don't think any of us got nailed to a cross. I don't think any of us were tied to things and pulled in opposite directions and have limbs torn off our body or set on fire. Right? I, don't think any, I don't think any of us had that experience this year. But with that said, it was still a year filled with challenges. It was a hard year, right? I remember meeting with the church board at our previous church back in March of 2020 when the reality of the COVID situation hit. And it required a response. And the, the default setting went to, well, we have two options in response to this COVID situation. We can, we can just keep doing what we've been doing all along, or we can just shut everything down and stop. Right? Those were kind of the two options that we just gravitated to by, de- by default. But as, as the pastor of that church, it was my responsibility to call the church to continue its mission and to be faithful to what we've been called to, even if it meant starting from scratch. There were members of that church that needed care and ministry of the church to continue. There was members of the church that needed the church to keep being the church, even if we couldn't do it the way that we'd always done it or the way that we were used to doing it. The community in which God planted us needed the church more, not less, during this time. And I wasn't, wasn't here, part of First Church, when all of that started to kind of take place and go down. Um, but I do know that similar conversations were had here through the leadership of Pastor Ray, Pastor Hannah, the church board. I know those conversations happened here. But how do we continue to care for the people that need us to be the church? We acknowledge that we couldn't do what we've always done or what we wanted to do, but we couldn't quit either. And just as Stephen refused to let his faith and commitment to Jesus waver in the face of real challenges, in a real threat, this church refused to let go of the mission to which God called it. The church made the decision to continue to be the church regardless if the ministries and tools looked the same, if the practices and activities were, were different or not. 
We continued to be witnesses for Jesus and ministers of the gospel despite everything the world experienced last year. And it was messy. (laughs) It was messy. There was disagreements. There were times. There was misunderstandings. There was hurt feelings. There was concerns that as a church leadership team, we struggled to address. It was messy. There were questions that just could not be answered with a... in a satisfactory manner. We just couldn't get the answer that made everybody happy. There were opinions and beliefs about things uh, that fell on a spectrum all over, you know, societal, political, medical, racial, educational. Like, opinions came on a wide spectrum. The board made decisions knowing that not everyone would agree. We had to come together and make decisions together even when we had different perspectives and beliefs. This last year was a hard year to be the church. It was a hard year to be a church. And yet I get to stand before you this morning and share with you an annual report. Not only because the manual requires it, but because it's a privilege to let you know what this church has been up to for the last year. I get to share with you how First Church was committed to the mission despite all the challenges that last year presented. No, there wasn't lions and all of that type of thing, but it was a hard year. And I get to share how we together witnessed to our community, even though we faced a great deal of uncertainty ourselves. Your church board began last year asking themselves questions that they never imagined that they would have to ask. Should we stop meeting in person? What does online church mean? Can we be faithful to what God has called us to do with a microphone, a camera, and a live stream? How are we to be the church when we can't gather as the church? What happens to all the people that depend on us for our weekly gathering? They depend on that for encouragement, support, social connection when they aren't able to come. What do we do with those people? How do we help them? What happens to the church financial situation if people aren't here to put tithes and offerings into plates? Before I go any further, I think I speak for the whole board when I say that a great word of gratitude is due to Pastor Ray Duck, along with Yvette. Thank you guys for your leadership and your care and your concern. The church is grateful. Pastor Ray was technically an interim. (laughs) And if you've been around churches long enough, you know that interims fall on a a spectrum all the way to I'm going to show up five minutes before service on a Sunday and share a message and check, you know, be the first one out the door. Um, But that was not Pastor Ray. We all know that his leadership and his care for this church went way beyond what we could be expected from an interim pastor. And along those same lines, not only did the board have the task and responsibility of leading this church through a COVID response during a divisive and energized political and cultural moment. But at the same time that was going on, your church board was working to call a new pastor. Calling a new pastor is obviously an important moment in the life of any church and therefore in and of itself a complex task. And the challenges of that task were multiplied due to the realities of COVID. But your board led the church through the process And you called a new pastor, 
and the jury's still out on if they did a good job or not. We'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But the point is that despite the challenges and the obstacles, the church leadership remained committed to the mission and ministry of the church. It wasn't a year that they were going to back down when things got tough, but rather they worked together to witness to the gospel of Jesus. The stewards, part of the board, the stewards did an amazing job of focusing on relationships and personal connections in a year where isolation and separation was the, what was called for. In a year where they were forced to be more isolated and to interact via screens, the stewards said, no, we're going to have a personal touch. And they fought for that, no matter how difficult it was, how creative they had to get. The trustees had a year filled with project repairs and maintenance. Our properties are some of the most powerful tools that God has given us to steward over. And our trustees did an amazing job that during this year of uncertainty to help move things forward. Over the years, SDMI, or Sunday School and Discipleship Ministries, you know, there's some changes that happen from time to time in SDMI, but for the most part, it's a ministry that has clearly defined expectations and of kind of a bit of a routine and a habit. Like we know we have Sunday school at this time. We know we have this types of programs, and this is what we do. But like most ministries, SDMI had to let go of what we've always done and embrace a new way of ministering. And honestly, the biggest challenge in, in that area, in that ministry, was a transition from engaging everyone in person on a Sunday morning. Like SDMI is designed for everybody to come and be a part together here. And they had to completely let go of that and embrace a new way of ministering. We had to switch from in-person engagement on Sunday mornings to checking a live stream to see how many views we had and looking in comments to see who those people were. Just to see what, who was involved with worship in Sunday school. We learned an important lesson in SDMI when it came to a trunk or treat that we did. Families were a bit stuck at Halloween time. There wasn't options like there usually is. Door-to-door trick-or-treating was not an option for most families. But they had kids, <laughs> and they had costumes, and it was Halloween. They just didn't have options. But several of our church families pulled together, hosting a trunk-or-treat in the parking lot, giving these families an option for their kids to get out and show off their costumes while getting their Halloween treats. The community response was overwhelming. And not only was the trunk-or-treat a way for you know, kids to participate in, in Halloween activities with their families, but for many of those families, we had conversations as they drove through, for many of those families, that was their first family, public family activity they had in months. The first time they had gone anywhere with their kids. <laughs> it was a big deal. And we're not sure, like... It was, the, the traffic was backed way up the road, and it was, it was crazy. It was, it was overwhelming. And we're not sure, though, if you know, we do this again, if, if families will come out the way they did, because there's other options. You know, like They could go trick-or-treating in their neighborhoods again and all that type of stuff. We don't know if there's going to be hundreds of people that come through again like they did. But I think we all learned that by paying attention and seeing what the needs of our community are, like what is missing, what do they need, paying attention to those and giving that those families an option, giving them an opportunity that we can make a difference. 
That was a lot of work to put together, but the church proved again that we aren't afraid of hard things, and we are going to be faithful witnesses of Jesus and his love in our community. In a year where a lot of churches, many churches, were struggling with financial realities or worried about financial realities, First Church grew in its support of Nazarene missions. Not a single Nazarene missionary came home from the field for a lack of funds. And First Church did its part to be witnesses of God's generosity. First Church did its part to support Nazarene missions. We supported missionaries through the equivalent of deputation funds, even though they didn't come and speak to us as a congregation. We still gave them the money as if they did. We supported missionaries through, the, through uh, offerings and fundraising. We raised over $700 through Alabaster offering. And that supports building expenses on the mission field. Our Easter offering raised nearly $700 towards World Evangelism Fund, supporting our mission efforts around the globe. Our recent district uh, project fundraiser raised over $400 to provide technology resources to African Nazarene University. So while we couldn't host missionaries in our congregation, while we couldn't have a service where they came and did something for us, and while finances were a big question mark for the church just in general, First Church supported Nazarene missions with abundant generosity and with prayer support. Of all the ministries in the church, teen ministry is probably the one that is most reliant, most dependent on in-person engagement, right? When you think teen youth ministry, you think games, activities, crowds, doing things, right? Hands-on. And so this year proved to be extremely challenging for teen ministry. Canceled plans, canceled activities meant that the core methods of ministering to teens just weren't available as options to us. Students in the youth group who look forward to certain events and activities every year. We have the big events and activities that draws them in, that engages them, that they prepare for and look for all year. Many of those were canceled. So instead of excitement, there was disappointment. But if you look in that book of reports, the annual reports booklet that we set out there, if you look in there under the NYI section, you'll see that it is filled with ministry activities. Brenda led teens and other volunteers through a year of ministry, even though the usual plans had to be canceled. The normal stuff was canceled, but ministry did not stop. It's important to know that good percentage of those teens that come as part of the youth groups, I mean, some of them are part of our church family, but a percentage of them, they come not because their mom and dad make them. A good percentage of them, youth group is their primary connection with the church and with God. And so as you read through Brenda's report, I hope you see just how deep the commitment is to be faithful witnesses for Jesus to that younger generation. Despite all the obstacles and all the challenges, these teens were ministered to. Similar things can be said about his, his hand in the food pantry. Right? They couldn't serve the families in our usual methods. They couldn't serve the community in the, in the way that they always had. They couldn't even do it the way that things had been designed to run. Like there's a certain flow and a way of serving a lot of people in a small amount of time in a small area. And they couldn't do it. So every other Tuesday and Wednesday, there was a small army of volunteers packing boxes, 
shoveling carts with boxes on them, loading boxes into people's cars as they drove up to the door. They reinvented food pantry to make sure that those who had needs had their needs met. This group was determined to be witnesses to the generosity and abundance of Jesus. And no challenge, no obstacle was going to prevent them from sharing that message. On another note, last year, in this last year, First Kids Learning Center had a total enrollment of 167 students. Cindy and the staff of First Kids did amazing work this year. In a year where families felt more pressure, more stress, more confusion than ever before, when families woke up in the morning going, what are we going to do with these kids? How are they going to do school? How are they going to be safe? How's, what's life going to be like for these kiddos this year? First Kids was a resource that brought encouragement, peace, stability, and security to these young students and their families. The extra work and extra processes that, had to, that they had to do, not just to be open, because that was you know, step one, just be open, but to assure parents that their kids were well cared for. And th- those lists of processes and that extra work It's overwhelming when you look at it. And yet they were determined and committed to be witnesses to a Jesus that said, let the little children come to me. Right? Don't keep the kids from me. Let them come to me. And I want to share a quote from Cindy's report. It says, God is so incredibly good and continually displays his love for us, covering us in his tremendous grace and protection. He provides all that we need. I'd encourage you to read through the rest of Cindy's report when you had a chance. Make sure you, you do that. Another ministry that was impacted with challenges this last year was the worship team. The worship team shifted quickly to lead the church in worship and to care for the church during this major disruption, these challenges that last year brought. They implemented and grew a live stream and a digital presence. We had upgrades to technology, which doesn't always go smoothly, as you know. As we were able to gather in person, the worship team led us in some special services that helped us to see, hear, and experience God's presence. In a year where we may have felt alone and confused and wondering what God was doing, the worship team was committed to witness to the goodness and the presence of God in our lives. You'll also see in the the booklet of reports a report from Tabitha Fisher. She's a district licensed minister who spent years working in children's ministry, but last year Tabitha understood a call as a senior pastor. This is a big shift in her understanding what God was calling her to do, but last year as she understood that calls, the church began to help and embrace her with that call. And it's our privilege and responsibility to equip, encourage, and to help her prepare for what God is calling her to do. That's the task of the local church. And so with all the challenges that last year presented, Tabitha is a witness that Jesus is still calling people to the work of ministry and service in the kingdom of God. I'd encourage you to read her report. There was a lot of things that were against us as a church this last year. Like I said at the beginning, it was a hard year to be the church. But you have in your hands, if you have that report, (laughs) a celebration of what was accomplished when a group of people were committed to be faithful 
and committed to witness to our community about who Jesus is and what he's doing. And in a moment, uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's communion, the Lord's Supper. Symbolically, this, this represents a full meal. This represents a, a group of people getting together, or sitting around a table, eating a feast, filling their bellies, having a good time with each other, being filled. And as a church this year, gathering together for family meals was a challenge, even prohibited at times. But today we celebrate communion as a reminder that no matter where we are, no matter how divided or separate that the world may feel at times, not only is first church family, but there's Christians around the world that we are family with as well. So today we celebrate those who are witnesses of life in Christ. We celebrate those who are witnesses of belonging to this Jesus.